Welcome to the Eventualities Podcast, interesting conversations with the people behind our favourite regional festivals and events. We dive into the memorable experiences they create, the unexpected challenges they've overcome and what they've learned along the way. Peter Noble, OAM, has been working in the music industry for almost 50 years. In 2014, Peter was awarded the Rolling Stone Award for his outstanding career-long contribution to popular culture. In 2016, Peter was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia for service to live and recorded music, to tourism and to the community. Over the course of his career, Peter has worked in many areas of the music business, including record producing, touring artists, artist management, setting up the Aboriginal Artists Agency, event site development and festival promotion. Peter is the festival director for Byron Bay Blues Fest, which was founded in 1990, showcasing music from around the world every Easter long weekend. Entertaining 6,000 people in the first year, Blues Fest now attracts over 100,000 music fans. Peter was a keynote speaker at the inaugural regional events conference in Wagga Wagga in 2016, and it's an absolute delight to welcome Peter to the Eventualities podcast. Thank you, Peter. Hi there, Belinda. Can we start with you just giving us a bit of a background about your early years? You've had a really colourful life and I'm interested in just hearing about your your youth and then how you got into the music industry. Oh, look, I, I think I, like everybody that from my generation, um, we had this amazing renaissance of music, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the British music invasion and and all that followed that, you, you think about it. I mean, the Beatles come out, it's about 64. By 67, it's the summer of love, you know. We, the, you know, rock met the country music movement happened. I mean, every year, from psychedelic music to Jimi Hendrix, there was this incredible renaissance of music. And so not to be influenced by it, um, I just don't think you'd be breathing and, and alive, you know. I mean, from about the age of 13, all I wanted to do was emulate those artists that were literally changing the world. And it's, you know, if you weren't there, I get it. It's just all us oldies speaking about the 60s now. But it really was an amazing time. And, and, and yet in the background there was a Vietnam War and so we had something else that brought us together, it, you know, to oppose that. In fact, it, the conscription was introduced in Australia. I mean, in Australia, we, we, we voted against conscription in the First World War. You know, in the Second World War, we didn't have much of a choice. We were defending our country. But there's a lot of people just went in those areas. And, and it was the time of change. I mean, things happened like I remember, not that I would ever imbibed in it, but I remember when LSD was legal. And, this was all at that time. It was incredible change. And so everybody, and I was living in Sydney, everybody wanted to say to their neighbourhood mates, well, you be the singer, you be the drummer, I'll be the guitar player and you be the bass player. And we go, no, I want to be the guitar player. But, but that's what happened. And you go and rehearse in your garage or the local scout hall and your whole goal was to put on a show in that scout hall ultimately for your friends. And what did you play, Peter? Did you play an instrument? I played bass. Of course. Um, <laughs> and, and out of that first band, which I think formed about mm, 64 or 5, um, we were auditioning for a singer and 
where I grew up in what's now called the southwest of Sydney, it was called the West in suburbs back then, but Sydney grew. Um, we had a lot of English migrants coming into Australia, the 10 pound palms, and they were not just English, they were Europeans, and not too many people from the brown country back then. But anyway, um, and those people, in Sydney at least, were first introduced to Australia staying at the Villawood Migrant Hostel, which was by a railway line, and they'd jump on a train pretty soon and come down that railway line and get off and rent a flat. So I grew up and my band was playing near to that area, which ultimately produced the Easy Beats, ACDC, John English, Downtown Roll Band, you could say so many. And this Scottish guy comes and auditions for the band and we loved him. We thought he was brilliant. He went on to form Sherbet. But um, and said to me after, this, after it all, well, I don't want to join your band, but I'm putting one together. I want you to join mine. And so all of a sudden I went, I betrayed all my neighbourhood mates that I grew up with and joined an all Brit band. I was the only Aussie in it. And within months we had agents and we were playing and, and it just, we, we were professional very quickly by the age of like 18 and living in hotels. That is amazing. I mean, so were you touring as... Pubs, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. And were you touring... Yeah, we had enough money to leave home. And, and as one of them said to me not that many years ago, he said, I was making more money than my dad. That's and amazing. it was an incredible time. And they said there were 5,000 bands in Sydney at that time that all wanted to be another Beatles or Rolling Stones. I mean, try to find 500 now. Try to find... It's sad, but... They, they, there were so many gigs. There were so many places to play. And one of those places was called the Rave Disco at Collaroy on the northern beaches of Sydney. And I just fell in love with that area and ultimately moved there on my way to where I am now, where I've been for 30 years. I lived up the far northern beaches, Whale Beach, around there, but in the hills in a cabin. I couldn't afford the, anything else. <laughs> And I followed the hippie trail. I mean, I, I moved up to where I am, where the, where the communes all began. I remember when they were selling shares in those communes. I didn't buy any, but uh, I followed them up 20 years later. Yeah, they came up in the 70s and I was here by the beginning of the 90s. And in that time, you also did a stint overseas, didn't you? I, I did. I, I from that, When that band broke up and I, I learned a valuable lesson that you know, when you we were being led into licensed venues before we were 18 years old because of who we were. But once that band had broken up after two or three years together, maybe more, I think we formed it. Hmm, we certainly formed, we were, we were certainly together in 66 and still together in 70, but that's when we had our only hit single. So somewhere after that, when we broke up, I'd get back to those same venues and they'd, well, they'd wave me in and they'd look at me and they'd go, five bucks or whatever it was, you know, you, you get your comeuppance very quick that, you know, one day you're a pop star or what you want to call it, um, and the next day you're nobody. And it was a very good lesson in life actually because it's very, when you're in those teenage years, it, it's very easy to get a very big swollen head about who you, your life uh, perspective is, your ego and who you think you are. So to be shown 
something else at a young age as well, certainly was very, very centering. <laughs> <laughs> but I went on to play in other bands in Australia. I, I, and I was working with Marsha Hines in 74, and I decided to jump on a plane, go to America and see how I went. And I got off the plane and was offered gigs almost immediately. Um, in Los Angeles, I was very lucky. And so out of that, I spent five years in the US and ultimately I played in a number of bands there and touring. And, um, and the final one, we, uh, I, how do I put this? The, the, the final one was, uh, uh, there, were, there were issues in the US in the mid seventies about bands that were um, not one color. Mm-hmm. So the band that I was in had a black front line of three female singers and a male, a couple of Chicanos and a couple of us taking whiteys in the band. And um, we couldn't get work in anything but the black clubs. The white clubs didn't want you because they would, in parenthesis, say, oh, we don't want our audience mix to change, which meant we don't want you black fellas. And it was awful. But... And, and so I left out a whole period of time where I lived at the National Black Theatre in Redfern there, but, but staying in America now, we had to tour and primarily Canada to, to make the money. We're a big band, eight pieces. And, uh, and so we did. We were on the road constantly in Canada, which didn't have those issues. That, and, and not that we would necessarily have issues generally, you know, on the road, I think once or twice. I remember they, if we were driving late at night and we needed to get something to eat between shows, I would be the test uh, guy who'd walk into the roadhouse to see if it looked safe. But I used to do that back in Clapham Junction. I remember in Grafton having a major fight and having to pull the air rifle out of the car in a hamburger store after a gig. I remember in Dubbo having almost a shootout. Oh, my um, God. So... Those things used to, it used to be different. You know, people would people didn't think people. A lot of people thought if you were very, how do I want to say it, mod. You know, looking like Carnaby Street, long hair. Uh, that was quite confronting in many parts of our country, and so people, so artists carrying guns was not unusual back then, the sixties. And uh, anyway, there are all other stories. But oh my goodness, we could do a whole. <laughs> podcast on that so how did you go from being in a band a performer to the other side what what brought that about uh both my women left me on the same night so um it's actually the truth because i i, I wasn't faithful to my wife when i was on the road i had a relationship going with one of the lady singers my wife found out about it and she came to a show we were doing in um, vancouver british columbia and Next minute, they're both sitting together. And so they both left me the same night. And I damn well, and I, I, it should have happened. It really, I, I was just a very young man. I thought I'd get away with anything. And, and you learn as you get older, hopefully, that doing those sort of things hurts people. And, and what are you getting out of it? But it's just ego gratification. So I don't do anything like that anymore. How old were you then? I got fired from the band and dropped at the side of the road in Portland, Oregon, and uh, with no money. And because the band was pretty, 
they, 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 they didn't like what happened either and I deserved it. And um, so I managed to go and get a job in a takeaway food store, getting abused by customers as they bring the food out because you're only getting $2 an hour. And I walked down the street and I saw a sign that said American Entertainment. And I walked in and I said, you know what, I can book bands. I've been booking bands all over Canada and the Midwest, north, northwest of the US, because it was a role I had in the other band. That's why I never heard of them again after I left. But anyway, <laughs> and I, I said, look, if you, you don't have to pay me. I'll work on commission, but you do have to give me a room breakfast. And God bless the man, he said yes. And so I went instantly from being a, in the music industry for around oh. 14, 15 years to, um, to to being on the dark side and, 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 and being an instant agent and, and then one of the agents that used to book the band in, uh, on, in Victoria and, and Vancouver Island in Canada called me and said, I've got these two great musicians coming through. They were well-known jazz guitar players, Herb Ellis and Barney Kessel. Barney played on the many Elvis records. He's part of, um, you know, that group of musicians in Los Angeles that used to play on everything, whose name escapes me. And, um, and he said, I only want 500 bucks on the way south. And I talked the guy into putting the show on, and we took 3,500 bucks. And from that moment on, the club owner said, Come around. <laughs> and, um, and before I knew it, I got, I was, the company I was working for put up the money for B.B. King and artists like that and the other guy ultimately enticed me to become his room booker and, and that went from putting on artists as diverse as John Lee Hooker to the Ramones, you know, from the police to who were on the way up to, um, to you name it, you know, Mongo Santa Maria, San Ra. I, I was, so I, I got, in that 18 months, I got this incredible education because and this club had nobody prior but local artists in blues, in jazz, in, 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 in the punk movement that was blossoming at the time. And I've always been someone that loves all kinds of music. I know I get pigeonholed a little bit, oh, you're the blues guy, but I am. But that's not the only thing I am. And so there came a point where I decided I was going to come back to Australia into the 70s. And my girlfriend at the time, we travelled down here and she got a job working at the basement at Jazz Club in Sydney and told the owners about me and they said, tell this boy to come on down. I was driving a taxi and <laughs> intending to be in Australia for six months and go back to the US. And um, again, these lucky things that happen. I mean, they say you make your own luck in the music business. And I think to some degree you do. You, you present opportunities and God bless them. Chris Richards from the basement, one of the greatest bookers of talent I've ever met in my life anywhere in the world. Um, they, they backed me financially and we started bringing artists in. Same artist initially that I bought to Portland, Oregon, Herb Elson, Barney Kessel, but then that just went into a Jimmy Witherspoon and I'd have to get the list. I mean, they're just dozens. And then that gave me the confidence to go out on my own. But I always brought acts back to the basement way up till the day they closed because they gave me my start and, and, and Chris is still one of my closest friends. 
even though he's retired now, but I, I think he'd always come back if somebody was smart enough to book a genius to, to make their venue work. But um, his name's Chris Richards. I've got the contacts if you want it. There we go. We'll put those in the show notes. <laughs> so how did you go from the basement and, um, you know, being back in Sydney to moving up north? Oh, well, that, that was about, let me get my timing right. I, I lived around the Sydney area on my return for about 10 years promoting and doing all that. And there was a venue that opened in the mid-'80s in Byron Bay called the Piggery, the Arts Factory. Danny Depel opened it, American guy who was a draft uh, dodger who had a band called the Nutwood Rug Band, moved to Australia in the 60s and started a commune at Arimba on the central coast in the countryside there, put on the first ever music festival ever in Australia, Pilgrimage for Pop. And that burnt Sunbury so bad because it was actually about, you know, peace, love and uh, everything else. And every artist played on it, from Thorpey to Jeff St John to you name it, all for free. Nothing to get in. Because that was the original concept of festivals. And then we saw this other concept that followed very quickly the Sunbury festivals, which was all about getting out of it drunk. As Billy Thorpe used to say, suck more piss. And I went there once and I just thought it was awful. I actually went down to the creek and watched a girl get raped. I oh. mean, it was just, it was a bunch of bogans being bogans. And, you know, I'm only 20, 20 something years old at that time in the early 70s. And but anyway, yeah, wow, it wasn't so my type of festival. I know it's been canonized now. But if you look at it, the Great Australian Festival was always pilgrimage for pop. Easy to look at that. And I think Sunbury might have fit a certain mindset, but, you know, I wasn't, wow. about, I wasn't about that sort of thing. And um, anyway, so the Arts Factory opened in Byron. Danny DePellet moved up here by then, my area, so I'm not exactly in Byron Bay. Um, and I started doing the odd show there. and. I think the first one I ever did there was Canned Heat by memory. I remember him saying to us, all, oh, all come out and lay down with me on the grass outside. We'll watch the stars. I mean, it was all very hippie, you know, and next minute somebody passed me some kind of cigarette and I don't know what happened. But, um, <laughs> but we would come there with art, like be touring artists like the Whalers. And, the best show would, would be in, in the parking lot. I mean, they're just the whole countercultural community would be there celebrating and, you know, do, doing hair braiding and massages. And, and I just started to go, what is it with this place? I mean, there's only like at the time 4,000 people living in Byron. And yet, this venue, I think, was selling at least half as many as its legal capacity. Um, <laughs> There was 1,500 people just like that. I mean, if it was just the town coming, you had almost half the town there. And there was nowhere else in Australia like it, except up around Cairns and Coranda. When we do shows up there, we'll be a bit, bit alike. And so I was tossing up, where do I want to live, you know? Because every time all the bands would be saying, you know, you'd go and you'd play great shows and you'd love them in Coffs Harbour and Taree and all over the place we'd always be looking forward to the Byron show because there was something unique about the area 
and the people that came to your show. And, and so that greatly influenced me. And I said, well, one day I'm going to move up there, which I, thought, which I ultimately did in 1991, exactly 30 years ago. At the time, um, I, I had a record label, I had distribution. I was distributing a number of international labels from Alligator to SST to label that had Huskadoo and acts like that on it. But I was also doing the blues and with Alligator and labels like that. And, and so I moved to the to the area and bought a bought land rarely. I've never actually lived in Byron Bay in the 30 years I've been here. Always lived, always live in the, you know, you've got, you've got to have land around you. It's just fundamental to life. You you need to wake up and feel the space and, you know, say hello to the birds you've got to know over the years and they say hello back to you and, you know, where I am, the wallabies come around and, and the bush turkeys in the morning and all those things, you know, the odd snake you don't want to see. You know, I saw a five, six-foot brown on my place three weeks ago. I think I was in shock for about an hour and a half, but I was too close to him. But anyway, he left quickly. Thank you. And <laughs> But all those things of just living in the country and being in the business from there. Um, yeah. And, and I, I find it's important. It's important to be able – I'm, I'm not a city person. When I was born in a city. But, I, but my parents actually came from the country and they were probably driven out of the country in the, in the Depression and moved to Sydney, as so many did from the country. But for me, I just wanted to get back and it just felt right to me. And, and it still does. I mean, uh, you, you have to push me hard to even get me to jump on a plane and go to Sydney and Melbourne, even though we're out of the lockdowns and all that, and everything's opening. I still think, do I really want to go? I could do it all from here. Yes. You're a champion for, for regional living, Peter. I love it. So talk to me about Blues Fest. How did it start? Why did it start? Well, the way it started was the same venue that Danny DePelle, the, the, the hippie band that back in the 60s, my band, we'd all go, oh, you know, these guys are from Haight-Ashbury. They weren't actually. They were from part of L.A., but, you know, they, they built this thing that, you know, that they were the, you know, the, the hippies from Haight-Ashbury in the summer of lovers when they arrived in Australia. When he moved up here and he opened the arts factory, he appointed a manager, and that manager, and I'm not quite sure of all the inner um, matters of how things happened, but they decided to do the first East Coast Blues Festival. I think it was the year was 1990. And so they came to me and others who were working in that area of the music business. We, I was known as pretty much the guy that did the reggae and the jazz and the blues, but I also did the, you know, anti-nowhere leagues and Johnny Thunders and the residents and the suite and a lot of other stuff too. And, and I sold them an artist and then I went there and I went, gee, they're onto something. It worked right from the beginning in the venue, and they, I think many nights they got to that, you know, half as half as much again as the legal capacity number. And then the next year I sold them John Mayle, 
another guy I'd, I'd met in America when I was with that venue. I mean, I met so many artists there. I was able to get a lot of those artists in to come to Australia. And I'm going, you know, these guys are onto something. And, and by 1993, they went outdoors for the first time, and unfortunately it didn't work. Um, it was very hard to get a budget that when you go outside that, that actually you've got it right. Because if you've got it right, it's, it's the key to prom promoting anything, festivals, conferences, you know, tours. You've got to have your budget right. You've got to know where, where your break-even is and your profit can occur. Unfortunately, when East Coast Blues Festival went outdoors, they lost a lot of money. And so the original people came to me and another guy and asked us to invest and become partners. So from 1993, I was a partner in the festival. It's a long time ago. Um, and 10 years later, my, my, part, my original partner sold to another group of people Michael Chug, well-known in the business, Glenn Wheatley manages John Farnham, people like that. And five years later, I brought all them out because they, they realised how crazy I am. So after five years, they wanted me to buy them out because I wanted to go to a permanent site and buy it and develop it. And I was very upfront about it from the beginning. I just don't think that they thought I would want to do it so quickly. Within three years, we were on that site. That's that's right. That actually leads into my next question. So was was it 2010 you moved to your now permanent home? Yeah, that's when we did our first festival yep. on our site at what's now called the Byron Events Farm. It was called the Tiagra tea, tea Tree Farm because it was a tea tree farm. We, we The first few years, we, we bought it, I think, in 2007, and it took us a couple of years to get to that point of being able to get all the applications in and approved with the council. Um, we were a tea tree farm in the beginning. We used to do, do two crops a year and sell it. Wow. But over the years, as it's built, as the event has built, the tea tree's been taken out field by field, and there's only like remnants of it left now because the whole 120 hectares, of which about, mm, say, 30, 40, 50, 30, 40, is forest and bush and won't ever be they cannot be touched. There's also koalas in there, which is an important part of our story. But um, and, and so we just developed the site from the first festival, which did feature Crowded House by memory, and um, through to today, of course, there's been a few hiccups recently. But, um, yeah, but this is what happens, and... and I, I think that our story of survival is one that the whole industry has become interested in. Will they or won't they? Well, you know, is the government going to knock them and by doing that, not by inference, but by reality, us? Is the government going to knock us, our industry, back again? Are they going to let us operate? You know, how's that crazy guy at Blues Fest, you know, getting up from being down for the 10 count on the mat and, you know, rescheduling and then rescheduling and then rescheduling. We're on our fourth, this is our fourth try next Easter oh. since we were shut down last year. Isn't it crazy? Well, look, that leads me in. I was going to ask you this later, but let's talk about it now. I'm going to quote you. 
Um, if, if you're okay with this. So in an article that appeared in the Sydney Morning Herald in April this year, following the cancellation of um, Blues Fest 2021, the day before the festival, um, you were quoted as saying, I haven't had time to have an emotional reaction. You have to immediately act to contact your team, speak to people, get press, press releases out. I'm still working through it. I have no idea when it will hit. It may not. So I guess my first question is, has it hit you as you... Yeah, it hit. <laughs> oh, but dear. it's like anything. I, I think, you know, like you're in shock, but you can't. You, when we were cancelled the day before the event, I, I still have a very, very strong feeling about that, that there could have been more understanding, compassion and discussions occurred. I do note that with COVID in the Sydney and other places at the time, we really used to show had no, nothing put on them other than open your gates at the normal time. Sporting events took place, but we would won one case. If a person had actually lived nearly over 30 minutes drive from the site who wasn't a ticket buyer, you know, the, the overabundance of caution towards our industry that was displayed was to me breathtaking, and, and I don't agree with it. I have had people give me assurances, including the current Premier, that that will never happen again. That was given to me on Easter Saturday, William. And the reason he said it was, look, we easily could have said, let's wait a day. If there's no more cases in the community, well, you've lost a day, but you can go on the other four. But if there are outbreaks, we're going to have to shut you down we would have said thank you. Thank you for regarding us as an important part of the community, as an important part of the events industry, and someone whose future needs to be also considered. So many people were put out of work. Mm-hmm. So many people lost money, the stallholders who bought food. They were never compensated, um, even though I fought for it. And so I have signed a, a, what do you call it, NDA, non-disclosure. Certainly, yes, the government were very helpful with us with, with our losses and we made no profit. We lost money, yeah, you know. And, and, but more than that, we lost confidence and our industry lost confidence. Who was going to set up another event? That could happen to you. It was just like that. That was the message to our industry. That was when these people could have been more aware of the damage that was going to get done and the fact that now that we're coming out of um, lockdowns and restrictions at warp speed, there aren't any major festivals hardly occurring because everyone's waited. Everyone said, well, look, I, I need to know what's going on. I can't take the risk. But, you know, major events cost you $10, 15000000 million. I mean, you know, try anybody losing a couple of million dollars and just going, oh, yeah, okay. I mean, you can't do it. It's that simple. And so I'm very thankful that the government did give us an amount of money to allow us to pay debts and all the suppliers were paid and all of that. And But none of it, we, we weren't given a cash of money to do things. Um, Yes, there's been some investment in our next event from the government, thank God. 
But breaking breaking an breaking an event even of its debts gives it nothing going forward. So that was the thing we, we had to say. Okay, you know, we go. We were able to pay all the crews, and we're able to pay the guys that set up the stages and the chairs that were all empty. You know, and, 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 the, and the sound systems that played to no one, and you know, the artists. Many cases, the artists that arrived. You know, I, I, I did give an amount of money to the artists, just going. You know, I, I didn't. I mean, it wasn't about a contract. It was. It was about being a human being. These artists it was the first time they had a job in a year, and that was snatched away from them at the last minute. It was to me, it was beyond cruel. It was you know, all options should have been on the table. Moving forward, I now see our industry. We're looking at Tammy Country Music Festival's 50th happening, and I can't wait. I'm going to go. Can't wait to go. It's going to be the first event, you know? A hundred percent. Great celebrations. It really saddens me. When Adelaide's going to be on in March. Mm. Mm. Blues Fest on in April. Yours and ours in Wollongong will be on somewhere in that period. And there'll be a number of, of course, one-day events at wineries and things like that. But festival, the festival industry is not coming back till spring next year, apart from Splendour in July. That's when things are now getting worked on and announced. I mean, here we sit 19-odd months uh, from all those closures but guess what? It's another 10 months for the festival industry. We'll be back. It'll be spring. You know, we're, we're, not, we're, we're not easily able to just change gears from basically sitting in neutral to top speed. Everybody has to book artists, venues, do budgets, find in many cases, find employees. They let parts of their team go. I mean, those were things we never did. I, I Within three days of our initial public health order, March last year, um, my staff were all going, what's going to happen to me? I've got children. I've got a mortgage. And I took them out in the open field opposite our office and said, you've all got a job. No one will be let go. We may have to knock your time back to three or four days a week, but no one will be let go. That's how we went forward. And within three more days, we said, we're doing another event. We're not going to risk all those mental health issues, which many people in, had occur anyway, because we wanted to focus on the future rather than Oh, what's going to happen to us? So we we announced Blues Fest Mark, the last Easter within a, under a week of our cancellation. Before even the one in twenty twenty was due to happen, that was cancelled three weeks out. And the reason we did it is we all wanted to be working as a team, focused. Now a number of my staff left um, over the last year and a half. Yeah, some of the older ones retired. Some of the younger ones, I think, suffered mental health issues. 
but we're still a team. We're actually a bigger team right now today than we were then. I think there were 17, 18 of us then, and there's 21 of us now. Um, because you don't have an industry doing events if you don't have those people in your office that are specialists that, you know, if I need to change my art, well, I go to my art person who's a permanent employee in my office and have her update it. If I need to change my press release, I go to my person there that works in publicity and, and, it, and does copywriting. If I need to change my social media, I go to my social media manager. You know, you, you, this is required if you're going to be a business that works. And all those people, one of them even moved to Melbourne, which was, and then contacted me and said, can I come back? I need to get out of here. I go, well, you can't get out of there. But as soon as she could, the one day, first day she could, she came back. Um, that, yeah, because that's critical to me. We, we need to have the professional staff going forward. I heard so many horror stories of businesses downsizing and, and certainly when you look one step outside of that, the suppliers, you know, the guys that do sound, lights, load-ins, loaders, build stages, I mean, they were all out of work and have hardly been back in work for a year and a half. Why, well, mate, when we got knocked on the head last Easter, I made sure they all got paid because in the end we're all, we're all these cogs, you know, in this big machine and we don't work without the existence of the other. We've lost a lot of people and we have to build it up again. And that's, you know, every time I do an announcement, I've done one today, the Cat Empire's final show. What an honour that they, they called me and said, we want to do our final show with you. We, we, you know, you, you booked us in the beginning and you, we want to be there at the end, even though a couple of the members are going to do something exciting and it's going to be called the Cat Empire, but I'm talking the original members. But, you know, I look at things like that and, and I can tell you, and I, I, it happened earlier this morning, I haven't been on the emails, etc. cetera. I will, I will get five, somewhere between five and 20 bands contacting me today asking for a gig because we're not back at work. You know, the, 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 maybe some of the small venues are booking those people that need the bread and butter work, you know, to, to, to exist. And, you know, there's artistic people, musicians who have been going, what am I going to do here? Am I going to become a Dan Murphy's delivery driver? Because that was a growing industry. You know, ours is not growing. It's going backwards. And I'll be contacted for between five and 20 different bands today for sure. Wow. And I'll write to every single one of them and I'll go, look, I'm sorry, we're booked out. We've been carrying artists forward since 2020 and I, and I can't fit you in. I mean, if John Farnham gives me a call, well, that could be different. <laughs> but, but if you know what I'm saying, and, and it really shows me every time we do an announcement, we do one every couple of weeks, how many people are looking for shows they're not there. The venues haven't returned to the levels that they were once at. When this is not just like you, you flick a button and our industry go, comes back. We need help. And what I'm hearing in the background, there's an announcement today by the Premier that 
they're going to be investigating all grants. Well, you know, it's pretty obvious where that's come from. But without grants, how are we going to move ahead? You know, there's guys that should be getting grants so that they can create the jobs so that our industry moves ahead or, or access to loans, all those things that we need. Of course, we need in every state and really nationally, we need an insurance policy against cancellation because you can't get one from the traditional insurers. So if there's no communicable disease cover, i.e. COVID, then you can't get fully insured. If you can't get fully insured and you get cancelled, guess what? You don't get any money. So who's going to invest in shows unless you're Live Nation or TEG or AEG that are primarily owned by overseas interests and they've got big, you know, pots of gold, but the rest of us don't. You know, it's okay that Frontier and Live Nation and those ones are all owned by multinationals, but um, we need these policies and, and, with, and with certain states yet to jump on board about what they're going to do to open, you can be pretty sure that no artists are going to plan to go to those states because we can't just do it on spec. We also need business interruption funds, which, would, which if they're done hand in hand by governments, and I'm hearing that the New South Wales government is very close to announcements. They may have already made it, but very close. So that the percentage of your loss is covered by the government. And then the balance of that could be covered by your insurance payment. So you can then, and then you can go to potential lenders if you've got a business that's profitable and potentially borrow against your future ticket sales, which have to always be in some kind of trust account. Um, all these things are fundamental for us to come back as an industry. And the discussions need to happen. I mean, I, I, look, I can go, oh, yeah, I was calling for this a long time ago. Well, the truth is I was. But um, certainly from well before this time last year with the insurance because I did some research and I, I looked at the Federal Treasury and, and I went, oh, wait a minute, when 911 happened, you could no longer get terrorism cover. So the building industry was the one that was primarily affected and the Treasury, our Federal Treasury created terrorism cover. As a result of, you know, back there in, what year was that? 2001. 2001. Mm. Well, guess what? You, you can still get it. Mm. Every three years they review it and then they renew it. So I put, I put it to my local federal member, to the Treasury, within the next budget, to have an insurance cover. Unfortunately, they said no because the public health order to close down is done by a state government, so they saw the insurance cover as a state government matter. But we could say, yeah, but touring musicians don't stop at the borders. We, we go from Sydney and our next play can be Melbourne or Perth or Darwin. It can be anywhere. So, you know, you, you've got to incentivize the artists to want to risk touring because they have to pay all of these bans 
The musicians are offered on salaries. They have to pay for rehearsals. They have to be ready to tour. They've got crew. Um, particularly at the mid to lower end, you can't afford to tour if, you don't, if, if you're unsure your dates are going to happen. So we're still attempting to get things done. I, I'm a bit of an indie. I don't do it from industry groups, although I support them all. Um, pardon me, this is how I am. But having said that, we're still a long way to go. There's still a lot to do to get this industry back. Pardon my long answer to your question. Gee, we need to sit down with government, and government's not in a hurry to sit down with us as much as they should be. I am told today, where I'm doing this interview is November 3, there will be a vote in the federal, uh, federal level about an insurance policy, but unfortunately the, the bill was brought forward by the Greens. It's not being propelled by the, either the major parties. It's unlikely to get up. But it doesn't mean it shouldn't happen. And I still thank Sarah Hansen Young for doing doing that. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That's so insightful, Peter. And you've really, I think, given us a really personal account of what these last two years have been like. So, so thank you. We've got a lot of people, as you know, who live regionally and work regionally in the festivals and events space that listen to this podcast. So off the back of what you were just um, talking about, is there anything that we can be doing, whether it's as an individual, as a regional business or council or festival owner, that we could be doing to help, I guess, agitate that cause? Well, I, I, I'd start with Wagga Wagga. Or Wagga. Um, what impressed me greatly in 2016 as we went around the town, I didn't see any for lease signs. Now, that's something you don't see in many, if any, country towns. Mostly there will be a number of those. It really impressed me. Then I realised there was a base. It's an army base, yes? Mm-hmm. And we've got a rough base. And an mm. Air Force base. So there's all that adding to the wealth. Um, I, I know that there's been changes in people representing your area, but you do come from an area of wealth, and you, I could, and I picked up on that that to come from Griffiths to Wagga, and then from areas like Yarn and Parks and um, Forbes, people were coming there to be part of that event, and we all have. To same to some degree the same issues in, in that we need we need to know our members and hopefully they be lobbying in, in a forthright and manner with full integrity um, for our industries because we create wealth on top of the wealth of the community we create full-time employment for our events happening not just the employment on the day or days of the event. Um, within Blues Fest, I'll, I'll say this as quick as I can, we retain a company to always do economic impact reports because government likes that kind of stuff. It, it defines to government what your real value is. Once they get that, uh, they, they tend to answer your calls more if, it's, if, the, if the answers are good. It's also, if you want to plan an event, to an economic impact report going forward before you put your grant applications in. 
so that you're putting something on the table. Have your budgets done professionally. I use a company called Findex, and we really know what our event costs, and it's fundamental because you know what your goals are, and you set everything. What can I spend on the event to get to what I believe the achievable goals are, and what profit does that give? These are fundamental things that those of us in the events industry, and I'm sure my, I'm sure I'm talking to people going like, yeah, I know that. So I'm sorry if I am. But for younger people, we we have a lot of volunteers at Bluesfest, and there are some that will come from event courses, and they'll volunteer, and we're always looking for that bright young person. Every year we add at least, well, only one this year, a 20-year-old. Now, she literally told me last week, I'm no longer going to go to the events course because I'm working full-time with you and I'm working, I'm learning more every day than I learned there. And that's the truth. If you can get on the job at, a, at an event like a Blues Fest or something like that, if that's on your resume when you decide to, as the millennials do, move on after two or three years, um, that people will take notice of that. So people in those positions where they volunteering, you get in an office, you you know, you put your hand up for everything and you actually show your your method. Excel in what you do. If you're in my around my country, we'll notice you. And if we think you're right to bring on as a result, we're gonna do it. Because that's how we find people. How do you get into the music industry? Well, that's a surefire way. Impress us. Show us you've got that work ethic. Show us you really want to be a part of it. You don't want to just say, I'm in the music industry. You're going, I'm in the music industry. It doesn't mean you have to work 60 hours a week. You know, the most effective work is work eight a day and take Fridays off. And only work Friday mornings if you have to. But one great thing that was said to me that I read in a book, a book by a guy called Shel Silverstein, and he wrote major country songs, including a boy named Sue for Johnny Cash. He said, you know what, the guy that succeeds is always there on a Monday morning. You know, he's not going, oh, am I going to go or not? And he's always there on Friday afternoon if he needs to be. You know, yes, you may have to outwork your competition a bit. And public, you know, bureau clock occurs when you're on top of everything. It doesn't mean you have to do everything, but the things you have to do, you do. I like to take Fridays off, personally, but I always work Friday mornings if I have to. And then there's that two and a half days you get off from lunchtime. We do that in our company. We don't work Fridays. We, we, we've determined that a four-day work week can be just as productive. It's all about how you put your week together because your, your family time, your time to just read a book and get off the bloody emails um, is fundamental for, for your ability to be able to just be effective in what you do. And, yeah. 
Oh, thank you. And here, here to that, here to the four-day work week. Um, So let's quickly talk about Blues Fest 2022, which is happening from the 14th to the 18th of April. As you mentioned this morning, you announced the Cat Empire um, headlining um, as their original lineup, the last performance of that. You've also got, you know, Midnight Oil, Paul Kelly, Jimmy Barnes, Amy Shark, John Butler, just to name, you know, the so many. Yes, I know. I know the the lineup is amazing. Yeah, I know. So There's too many. Too many. There's it's about a, ninety at the minute. Amazing. So you know that's There's another ten next week. Oh, by the time this goes to where we'll be we'll be a hundred. Amazing. So talk to us about. Um, Blues Fest moving moving forward. Obviously, the the aim is to at least stage an event next year, and what an amazing event that will be. But where do you see the event going? What have you got planned? Um, what have you got planned for the site? I've always believed that COVID would not be something that will always be just so predominant in our society. At some point, we will get on top of it. Um, I have no reason to. I. I I'm not against the unvaccinated at all. In fact, if there's an unvaccinated artist that has a health issue that they can demonstrate to me, which in one case a person is a cancer survivor, you're welcome to play at Blues Fest. We will set up a totally separate area for you. You know, we want you. We we don't want to exclude people. I I don't use the word discriminate because I don't think being vaccinated is is a form or being unvaccinated is a form of discrimination. Ultimately, we're going to get to 90 95% and the unvaccinated will be allowed, I think, to attend events. It will be down to the vaccinated if they will accept that. Moving forward on all that, you know, the Delta strain, we, we, we were all pre-Delta thinking we'd get, we would have been back by now because that, that knocked us. But I know my, my daughter was sitting in, She's from lives in Portland, Oregon, place where I ended up being after I got fired from that band. <laughs> <laughs> um, that she told me, and she's fully vaccinated. I know this is going up. She spent two hours sitting next to a positive Delta strain person and didn't catch it. And that person was breathing. I'm not saying that what I mean. All the things we hear about how infectious it is, and I'm going, well, what happens? You know, like she goes, oh, well, look, you know, I'm, I'm sitting at home, but we don't have to self-isolate for 14 days. You know, after four or five days, I can just go out. I said, what about your friends? No, it's all fine. And you start to see how things are, and certainly Oregon is not a, it's not like Texas or Tennessee. It's not like they didn't remain, or Florida, sorry. Tennessee and Florida remained open throughout COVID, no restrictions on any entertainment venues. I mean, but we're moving out of all that at warp speed. I, I, I believe now that, that I, I, last night I counted the amount of airline, the airlines arriving into Sydney today. I think there was 15. If you work that out, that's well over 3,000 seats. If you work that out, that's, over 20,000 seats a week, plus Melbourne. All of a sudden, we've got 30,000 in a city, those two cities coming in. We, we will clear the backlog of Australians wanting to come back quickly and we'll open up to international tourism and international tours. If people are fully vaccinated, they get PCR tests 72 hours ahead, 
and they don't have to go into 14 days quarantine, the tours are going to open up. Blues Fest next year, I'm not saying no to international tours occurring. We're still holding a number of artists. Yeah, their outside shows are on sale and should, in the fairly near future, everything open up, they'll happen. What I wanted to do with Blues Fest next year, as I started to see, look, the government is serious here. The day, we, we just, we've gone from being in a pandemic to something that's endemic. It's going to be with us in society and we're going to have to make it work. That will mean that apart from New Zealand, we are, we are on par with the rest of the Western world, Europe, the Americas, Canada. Um, so I really wanted to do the greatest celebration of, of, for the return of music. If, if internationals are on Blues Fest next year, there's only about going to be six or eight. But it's all about Australian and Kiwi artists and putting together a bill. And call me a promoter if you like, but I, I, I think to some degree I'm a patron of the arts um, or, entre or I'm entrepreneurial. And, and yes, I have been lucky enough to lead a festival that is, you know, the most highly awarded in this country and we're a rural event. You know, just this year, the Polestar, the Bible of the live music industry in America, batted us in the top 10 festivals of the decade, once like Glastonbury and Coachella, and I'm like, are you kidding? What is this little event that gets around 20, 25,000 people a day? You know, try going to Glastonbury at 200,000 plus a day. I mean, I, 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 I went for one day and said I can't go back. It's just too full on. It's just not me, you know. I, I love that basic, not even mid-size, you know, that event where you can, you just don't feel like there's 70,000 people around you. Um, but anyway, we did. And, and but my goal this time is different. My, my goal is to do the, just this incredible celebration of the return of live music at a level where everyone's going to get it. Everyone, you know, we're, we're talking about making a, a film, a documentary out of it. We're talking about streaming it. And, and that's all because this is a big occasion. You know, if there's been another bill of Aussie and Kiwi talent like it or anywhere near like it, please tell me. But we can't discover any that, that, are, that are like me. Yeah, maybe they've had 10 artists, one or two, 20, not 100. And you get down to the 40th, 50th artist, and you know who they are. Um, so, yes, it's not a traditional Blues and Roots festival with some headliners on top that might bend the genre a bit so we get the house in so that it all works financially and those Blues and Roots artists that you love, I can afford to put on. Um, you know, it, it's a celebration of the return of music and... Well, I know we're well past 50,000 entries and we're waiting on the government to make some announcements in a couple of weeks' time, around December 1, which hopefully will give us a increased capacity because otherwise we're going to sell out. You know, we're really selling tickets fast. And, um, and that's not promoter speak. It's like we... we just the Cat Empire alone have sold in the last two days before the announcement, and now today, which I'm not up to date with, 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of tickets. I mean, the interest in Booze Fest, and, I mean, apart from socials, we don't even buy advertising. It's, it's good not to have competition too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's, it's going to be big and it needs to be big and, and everyone needs to take notice. And in particular, we, well, if, we'll be inviting every politician and maybe some will come for the first time ever, but, um, you know, we always invite them. And we'll be saying, listen, you know, it's not over. You know, we need you to see what can happen here. This great wealth that we've brought into our community, that all those guys who've been struggling with a coffee shop or the fact that, you know, you're sure the building industry is doing okay, but there's a lot that aren't. The tourism industry is finally getting some dollars. But we need to have a major windfall and say to all those politicians, it's not over. We still need investment. We, and we're showing you how an industry can occur which, which doesn't need to chop down the side of your hill or, 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 or dig it up. You know, we're, we're, we're low intensity in many ways. The worst we do is, you know, create some carbon in, in, the, in the atmosphere from flying in planes and things like that, and, and those need to be considered. I get it. But we are we, we, we not intrusive industries. We, we, we bring happiness, we bring wealth, and we leave a beautiful memory, and we don't destroy the land. That's just... So why aren't you investing in us more? You're doing it for all the other guys. We create as many jobs, more, you know. That's where I'm going with this. Oh, and this is where it's going to be the action. biggest thing ever. Huh? A great call. Maybe they'll take the calls. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> now, look, we'll, we'll wind up soon. Was there anything else you wanted to touch on? I think you mentioned there were a couple of things you wanted to touch on. Well, just we, we've learned a number of things also. We, to have all our eggs in one basket with Blues Fest um, as a major event, needing a large capacity, is something that we've had to um, review. So we're putting buildings on our site. Um, you, you know, I mean, to put a hocker tent up with one side glass and the other side, uh, that hard plastic that you can have, it's like a permanent building. And I, I learned that from going and seeing that wonderful um, conference centre or marriage centre at just outside of town, St Edwards. And I came yes, St Edwards of the Riverina, shout out to them. The idea. <laughs> and, and I finally gone, you know, you got to do this because you, you need to be able to do on your site, if you've got a site, weddings, parties, anything, from the Hatha Yoga in the morning to the, you know, to the National Party meeting in the afternoon and Angus and Julian's stone, hopefully at night. You <laughs> know, all those things. So we've got, we build, we use our events areas to build our future and future wealth. I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm going to build an amphitheatre, but that's, that's in its early days at the moment. The other one's just about on the water this week. It's not about, hey, I'm going to retire. I'm going to retire when the Lord takes me out. Um, we'll be ready when I go to continue and have provided for the next 50 years. It's just important, you know, that we need, we, we, those of us who can, we leave a legacy. You, you know, I mean, Michael Gudinski certainly did that. And love him or hate him, have to respect him. And um, there's people like that 
that leave an ongoing legacy and something to aspire to for the future. I'm not trying to compare myself to him. All I'm saying is, on my level, I want to be able to do the same. That's all about David. Oh, thank you. Well, look, we're just, it's been a delight to have you on here and for you to share your wisdom and knowledge. And, um, you know, you have certainly led a colourful life and we look forward to seeing where you take um, Blues Fest. I've got a few really quick questions that I normally wrap the podcast up with, so just quick fire. So what was the last event you went to? Do you remember? It's probably a couple of years ago. Yes, I do. Um, I, I was in the US January, February 2020, and I flew over there and I went to New Orleans to go to Folk Alliance, which takes over one whole hotel and, you know, 12 floors of rooms with somebody doing a show in each room. I've, I, it was the second I went to Montreal the year before. It just, the buzz is unbelievable. You know, you've got hundreds of artists performing. And it goes for like five days. And then I jumped on the blues train uh, from New Orleans to Memphis because the International Blues Challenge was on. Um, hung around a few days in that, flew over to LA for the Polestar Awards because Blues Fest was up for the National Festival of the Year. Nine, nine times nominated in 10 years. The other time, they didn't have an international. Um, and it, I'm very proud of those things. And, and so, yeah, there was like three events in a row and then boom, come back here, jump into a Mavis Staples tour early March and then had to work for a year and a half plus. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow. Okay, so what um, – this is going to be a hard one for you, I think, but have you got a favourite event that you've been to, besides your own, of course? There's some things I really like. Um, it just – I don't go to events like Jazz Fest anymore, and I, I used to go to Woodford Festival all the time but found – because I also live in Bali, Indonesia, that it's it's a time when I can get to be there, except a minute, because I have a place there. Um, the Woodford Festival is my favourite festival by far in Australia. I, I just it's just so multi-dimensional. I, I just look at it from a talent perspective. It's great to be there. From from a just creating it perspective, I, I'm just in awe of them. Um, but I like things like the Indigenous, the Indigenous Music Summit that I attended in 2019 and 2020, Year One Montreal, Year Two New Orleans, which was part of Folk Alliance, and just being able to play in with Indigenous people from around the world. Um, we all know that the people that sell the tickets are the headliners, but the people that give your events heart and soul is what makes a great event. And I'm not saying Blues Fest is or isn't a great event, but it'll always have that extra little things that it's not just about making money because money's great, but, gee, how many prophets have said you can't take it with you? So do something great while you're on the planet and, 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 then, and also look after your family by all means. But, gee, don't make it your goal. Yes, I agree. Um, do you have an event on your bucket list? Is there something you haven't been to that you'd love to attend? Um, so the event that I'd love to go to that I have never been to, well, I'd like to go to Fuji Rock in Japan. There's an event. I've been to Iceland, Reykjavik. There was an interesting event there that 
often um, mind-bumping performs at. I'd like to go to that. I'm, I'm invited to a couple of blues festivals around the place. One, one is in Denmark. Um, I'd like to go to those. They're just little events. There's one in Notterden in Norway I'd like to go to for the Blues and Roots Festival because these guys book interestingly and so that you kind of go like it's another slant on something. Um, you know, strict blues festivals are really are really successful, but guys that find that way to, to keep the blues alive really interests me by mixing it in some way. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a number of events. Well, I hope you get overseas next year. It's an event in Zanzibar I look forward to going to that Michael Franti played and was telling me about. Um, yeah. Wow. They're kind of off the wall stuff. You know, there's the Rainforest Festival in Sarawak that Junlin Yeo puts on. And I've always wanted to go. I've been to the site, but at a different time. Just interesting events. It's not hard to get to Sarawak. You just fly to KL and over to Kuching, and it's a 15-minute drive out of town. It just sounds so exotic. You know? Doesn't it? <laughs> it sure does. And now you've half answered this question. You've obviously been to Glastonbury. You said you went for a day and it was a bit big for you. So my question normally is Glastonbury or the Super Bowl. Have you been to the Super Bowl? No. Does it interest you? The Super Bowl, like the football? Yeah, correct. Um, no. I mean, as, as a great event, it will be interesting. But what I found about Glastonbury, I, I went on a year when they'd had a lot of rain. And, and so to move from one stage to the other, and you've got a couple of hundred thousand people, I think, 75 or something, you it took you two hours to walk between stages. I mean, every step you sunk into mud and took the risk of falling over, which I ultimately did. And then I'm saying, please help me up. And everyone's looking at me laughing. Um, I had the worst time and I had free tickets. I could get backstage. I, I mean, um, what's his name? Billy, Billy Bragg. Had, is his name? Yeah. He'd invited me backstage. I had an area to stay there. But, I mean, it was a mud pit in front of his stage. I mean, and I just went like, this is beyond awful. This is like, I've never seen anything like it. And I'm told the next year was great. There was no, <laughs> it wasn't. But the year I went, I went one day and said, I can't do this again. Um, Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, and your very last question is your favourite thing about the festival and events industry? My favourite thing? Oh, all the brilliant people I get to work with. Yeah, I mean, so many geniuses, not just the musicians. I mean, you know, I get to work with Peter McPhee as the head of my production. Well, he's now Elton John's guy. And, but, he, but he put in his contract. I still work at Bluesfest. I mean... The people I get to work with, they're inspiring, right down to my own team. Um, I feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Beautiful. That's it. It's these amazing human beings that are so devoted to what they do. You know, these incredible stage managers and crew and lighting guys and, you know, what an industry we work in. And, and, and event presenters too. We're an amazing group of people. I love it. 
I love it too. Well, thank you so much, Peter. Um, you've been so generous with your time and, yeah, honestly, I could talk to you all day. So thank you so much. Me and too, all Belinda. I'm really enjoying it. Sorry. I no, that. it's been great. Yeah. And all the best for Blues Fest 2022. I think um, tickets are on sale. I'll put the link in the show notes so people can jump on. As you said, I think they're going to sell really quickly, especially with more announcements coming up over the coming weeks. We still get our biggest announcements yet How's that? Wow. Okay. Stay tuned, everyone. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Eventualities podcast. Subscribe for future episodes and the best way you can support us is by leaving a review which helps others find the podcast.